Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the January sixth episode of Poets and Muses, our very first episode in 2019. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. With us today is Isaray Koval. She's going to read her poem, "Voices Through the Walls," and I will be reading my poem, "Bullfight." Before we get to our poems, I'm going to go over the many events taking place during the week of the seventh, starting with Monday. January seventh, from six to nine, at Cafe Tuba African Coffee Shop. Speak Easy Cafe Tuba Open Mic will be taking place at seven eight one two North Twenty Seventh Avenue in Phoenix. Sign up is between five and five thirty. On Tuesday, January eighth, from six to eight p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting their weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center. And that's at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 7 to 8:30 p.m., OME and Film Bar Phoenix will be hosting the Improvised Poetry Orchestra at Film Bar Phoenix, which is at 815 North Second Street. From 8 to 11 p.m., King Kong is hosting his The Underground Experience at 2601 on Central. Which again is at 2601 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. Sign up to be on the mic is at 7:30. For Wednesday, January 9th, from 8 to 11 p.m., Poetic Soul Phoenix will be hosting its open mic at Club Downtown, which is at 702 North Central Avenue. Sign up to be on the mic starts at 7 p.m. On Thursday, January 10th, from 7 to 9 p.m., Wordplay Cafe. Will be hosting its open mic at the Nile, which is at 105 West Main Street in Mesa. Starting at 6 p.m. before the open mic is the writing performing workshop. Meanwhile, in Phoenix, from 7 to 9 p.m., Long Nome Publishing will be hosting its Phoenix Poetry Slam, which is at the Lost Leaf at 914 North Fifth Street. Get there by 6:50 to get on the mic. On the same day, January 10th, it is the last day to email therealclute at gmail.com to get a chance to be picked for one of the nine open spots left for the 2019 All Arizona Poetry Slam, which will be taking place on February 2nd at Honeycut Coffee at 44,400 West Honeycut Road. Suite One O Nine in Maricopa. Again, the event will take place on February second. Make sure you email therealclute at gmail dot com by January tenth in order to have a chance to be picked for one of these spots, nine spots. Clute is K L U T E. So therealclute at gmail dot com. On Friday, January eleventh. From 6:30 to 9:30, My Beauty Within Movement will be hosting seven poets and 11 artists, including our guest from this week, Isaray Koval. That's at the Onyx Art Gallery at 1346 West Roosevelt Street, Suite A, in Phoenix. From 7 to 9 p.m., the Arizona Art Scene. Is hosting its group show at the Garage Art Gallery. That's at 1536 West Roma Avenue in Phoenix. From 7 to 9:30 p.m., Shante Orion 
Bill Campana, and Jack Evans are hosting the Caffeine Corridor Open Mic and Poetry Series, which will take place at 9 The Gallery at 1229 Brand Avenue in Phoenix. Sign up to be on the mic starts at 6.45 p.m. From 8 to 11 p.m., Lovtoski and Speaking Into Existence are hosting the Smoke It Into Existence open mic at Just Blaze Smoke Shop, which is at 1001 East Camelback Road in Phoenix. In Tempe, from 7 to 9, Friday Poetry feature and open mic is taking place at Changing Hands Bookstore at 6428 South McClintock Drive in Tempe. On Saturday, January 12th, from 7 to 10 p.m., the Arizona Art Scene is again hosting its group show, where I, Imogen A. Ray, your host, will be reading. And that again is at the Garage Art Gallery at 1536 West Roma Avenue in Phoenix. On Sunday, January 13th, from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its January Poetry Workshop at the Chandler Public Library. That's the Downtown Library at 22 South Delaware Street in Chandler. Following that, Connect and Heal will be hosting its Poetry Open Mic from 3 to 5 p.m. at Improv Mania, which is at 250 South Arizona Avenue in Chandler. From 6 to 9 p.m., Infuse Open Mic will be taking place at the Phoenix Center for the Arts, which is at 1202 North 3rd Street. Sign up for that event is at 5.30 p.m. As you can hear, folks, the week of January 7th is jam-packed with poetry open mics, workshops, and other events. I hope to see you at some of these. In the meantime, let's turn to our guest of the week, Isaray Koval. Hi, Isaray. Thanks for coming on to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm a local writer and visual artist. Um, I'm living in Mesa, Arizona right now. Um, I'm currently working on my first collection of poetry, which is called The Valleys of the Dead, which is just about life here in the desert, pretty much. Oh, nice. Yeah. There's a lot to write about. <laughs> I'm also a resident of the Mesa Art Space, Mesa Art Space Lofts, which is a, um, it's like a local artist community in downtown Mesa. Wonderful. Would you like to read your poems? Yeah, definitely. This poem is called Voices Through the Walls, and it's written in three parts. So one, there was no warning before a door slammed and knocked me from a dream, where I had stood in a crowd circling a group of school-aged boys who landed punches as we all screamed. In the apartment upstairs, it sounds as though a brick has hit the floor. Their dog begins to bark, and I hear a woman sob. Her voice sounds clear through my open kitchen window. A man screams using language I cannot understand. Each footstep is led, rattles the ceiling like gunfire, piercing through the walls with a bad echo until no one on the block can pretend to sleep. I roll over, walking out onto the patio to smoke when I meet eyes with a neighbor briefly, before sparking my lighter and turning my back to the wind. Two. Tonight my lover turned from a man into a fire, his silhouette in the door frame quickly blackening like a lit match. I hear my voice as though through another world, muffled, screaming, this is not me. Three. In the bedroom, the dog barks repeatedly, each bark like a blow glancing the skin of a drum. His long claws scrape the paint off of the door and rip up the carpet as my three children huddle together in the corner with the lights off, 
the oldest holding his hands over the ears of the little ones, deadening the sound of fists falling until the noise deafens in the night. Thank you. I love the progression, the transition, the transformation that happens throughout this poem, and how one part becomes the next part. And I was wondering if you can talk about、uh, a little bit about that because. Just on first reading, somebody might miss the fact that they are very much related, all three parts, even though they might speak about somewhat separate incidents. Yeah, I think、um, to me, when I first wrote the poem, it was in two parts originally, and there's the first part where we're describing、um, what is the neighbor who's downstairs and living downstairs from this incident, the incident, what they're describing,、um, and then the perspective of the. The woman that this violence is being perpetrated against, but I think to me, what the different kind of—it's almost like different compartments of experiences that are happening, and like the way that we wall ourselves off from、um, things that we've experienced, or like processing like violence that we've experienced, and、um, just also inviting in all the different perspectives of what's happening in the situation.、Hmm. Yeah. Since so, you're you're basically saying that originally it was only parts one and three that were. Mm-hmm. Or well, it was two parts, and parts two and three were all kind of one. Oh, okay. One experience, but I decided to change that so you see what's going on in these different compartments as this is happening, like the neighbor downstairs,、um, like the woman upstairs, and then her children in the separate room, kind of all like having their different experience of what's happening and like being separate, but at the same time all having、um, being connected to this violent experience in their own different ways. Right. Right. I'm glad you talked about it that way because I, I I felt like for me like the second part was the person the neighbor who got woken up and went to smoke and then the second part was about her the recall yeah of, is that correct I think it can almost be read that way too、um, like the way that I originally intended it was kind of just the different perspective happening at the same time but. Like I was saying, like the different compartments of experiences, and then you kind of going back to、um, if you've been like the victim of an assault or something, like when you have like a like a flashback with like PTSD or something, it's almost like、yeah. you go back into that room and you have a very、uh, like real visceral experience of what's happening, even though it was in the past. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely that, and I I love the the metaphors that you use and all the the very vivid imagery, you know, like the. What's happening in the apartment upstairs? It sounds as though a brick hit the floor, and then each step is like lead、um, rattles the ceiling like gunfire. All these very, very vivid imagery that pulls people's attention. Say, you know, going back to that very PTSD like experience. That loud noise that brings you back into the to the stanza brings you back to the experience, brings you back to the poem.、Uh, is this poem based on real events?、Um, well, the there it's not like autobiographical.、Um, like the, this is from the book that I'm working on, and it、mm-hmm. all kind of like the the poems or the stories in this book kind of revolve around this narrator, who's the person in the first part of the poem, and like the community that they live in. So there's a lot of like. Um, interaction like with the people in the community and like kind of like since when you live in an apartment you know you kind of like hear things and like、right. you're aware of like what's going on around、right. you even if you're not like in the same room with these people so it's like、um, but it's not it's not really autobiographical in that sense or like based off 
off anything, but I think we can tell a lot about the narrator of these poems, like from the things that they observe in their community and the people around them. Yeah. So it, it perhaps relates to the narrator. Okay. Okay. When did you write this poem, first of all? Um, I wrote this one. What year is it now? It was in I think August of 2016. Okay, so it's been a little bit. And do you remember the impetus? That what made you decide to write this particular poem? Was there a particular incident, or just recalling something? Well, I don't think there was anything like in particular, but like I was saying, like when you lived in an apartment, like I lived in Tempe at the time, and I do remember there was like a period, I don't know if it's exactly when this poem got written, but it was like everybody, like something in the stars or something, like everybody was just going through something, like in this unit up here, like the lady was like crying, and she was like yelling at her boyfriend because he Mm -hmm. like cheated on her or something, and then it's like these people were like all going, and then my personal stuff, so I mean, maybe kind of like related to that, also, I've just I've witnessed a lot of acts of violence, you know, and like, so I think it all just came from that in some way, but there was nothing directly that like, uh, like triggered it, you know? Okay. I feel like part one, and part one, uh, in contrast to part three, for instance, um, you, you mentioned, I mean, this might just be something factual that you put into the poem, like using language I cannot understand, and then go into the third poem where, um, it, it says my three children huddled together. It becomes a very personal experience, you know, because the first part was more about an observation of something, and then yeah. in the second and third part, especially, um, it all becomes very first person, become first person narration. So I thought it was a really good contrast between something. It's almost because as I was. The, the way I, I had read it, it was two different experiences. Yeah. Um, uh, I had thought it was recall, so just this having, experiencing this violence that was happening to a neighbor and then recalling something happening to the narrator. But, you know, uh, obviously now it's, it's totally different knowing how you meant to write it. Yeah. Um, I think within the context of like um, the book that I'm working on too, because like the woman upstairs is kind of like a recurrent character. So mm-hmm. it's like we see um, or we hear a lot of like what's what's going on in her life, just right. like that we hear through the walls and stuff. So right, yeah. Right. And also going back to this using language I cannot understand. I felt like just from a reader's pure reader's perspective, without the input of the author, the first part seems like oh this happens to other people, and then the second and third part you realize no no this happens to us as well. So it has that, again, the contrast and also making it incredibly personal and, and realizing that language is not a protection almost from this happening to anyone's community. Yeah. And That's, I kind of meant that in both ways because it's like, um, like the narrator can't understand what's going on and like why their, their life is this way. Also the woman upstairs in the, in the book, like she doesn't speak any too was another part of it. So, right. yeah. It also reminded me because of the you know upstairs the noise um, on reading it. It reminded me of Suzanne Vega's Luca, that song. Um, oh, I don't think I've heard it. Oh, something like uh, my name is Luca. I live upstairs and you something like that. I will play it for you after <laughs> after. <laughs> but um, it's it's actually about child abuse. And the the thing that's different from your poem is that I feel like. There are parts of the poem, like the third stanza, the first part, where you said, until no one on the block can pretend to sleep, 
And that pretense of everything being normal, despite hearing arguments or abuse happening, yeah. is it's almost like a societal level complicity to the abuse that's happening. Whereas in contrast to the Susan Vega song, was more Luca, who was a child being abused. He was embarrassed by what was happening to him, and he didn't want the neighbors to interfere. Whereas this is the neighbors themselves not wanting to interfere, and in some ways prolonging abuse like this. Did you? Is this something that you had in mind um, the pre- when you write uh, "Pretend to Sleep"? Yeah, I definitely wanted to comment on the fact that uh, a lot of these issues that people feel uncomfortable looking at and examining, they kind of get pushed into this shadow area where, like you were saying, nobody feels comfortable acknowledging what's happening. And also, like you were saying, there's some embarrassment on both sides of it. You know, and I feel like often the shame also gets pushed onto the victims of these things, like more than the actual perpetrators. Um, yeah, so that's definitely what I intended, but also there's just like this sense of, um, I would describe yeah, I feel like there's a certain um, sense of like alienation from a lot of moral values in our society, and because it's very unclear what the prevailing sense of morality should be, that it's led a lot of modern people into this gray area where we don't really know how to determine or decide what what a good value is, and so a lot of people just feel like this hopelessness or this um, this kind of numbness to reacting to these things, or like an unwillingness to take a stand some cases. Right, right. I, I talked about inter, intersectionality a lot in the last episode, but I feel like this is, um, in some ways, it, it's a double-edged sword in that for, for people who do think about intersectionality and do respect um, that everybody has their own sets of values and sets of what's important to themselves and to ourselves, yeah. sometimes it's a little bit we hesitate a little bit when dealing with other people's pain, dealing with others, um, you know, or stepping into other people's, um, especially with domestic abuse situations. We're thinking, oh, it's not, it's within their family. And and it becomes a little bit difficult for people to say, well, then I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. So even just thinking about it, on, on a, as a thought exercise, it can be a complex issue to deal with. Yeah. Um, and since you live through situations like this because of the poems reflect some some facts that you've experienced. Yeah. Um, even even if they didn't happen to you directly, I mean, what what's your stand on that? What would you do in a situation like that? It's interesting because a couple of years before I wrote this poem, I actually was in kind of a a similar circumstance that kind of speaks to this and what we're saying it's hard to know like where where you should get involved with other people's lives and especially because the family unit is kind of like its own like miniature community mm-hmm. you know and yes. so we don't necessarily know when it's our place to step in because there could be um greater repercussions to like interfere with that unit right. um but i had i had an upstairs neighbor um in my first apartment that i lived in that there was some type of domestic violence going on and i I went up there and I knocked on the door and she like got very angry at me. Like she opened the door and she was very irate about it. And um, I I just had like reached out to her to make sure everything was okay just because I've I've witnessed a lot of that. And so I didn't feel comfortable just like sitting there and kind of like listening to this and like waiting to see what happened. 
Um, but so for months after that, like just kind of with the noise, like she was like really kind of like terrorizing me and like very like angry and like yelling things and like, so it became kind of a situation. And like, like you were saying, I think that shame there like that rage from it that she kind of like she personally didn't feel comfortable with people on the outside knowing about this or trying to address it in her life so I mean it's weird because also just what I've witnessed um, like in, in my family unit I've, I've seen it happen a lot and yeah like it's it becomes the shadow thing where even the person who's being victimized like they don't feel comfortable with the attention being brought to the fact that they're being victimized and because they're choosing to stay in that situation so I mean, I don't, I don't always know what the solution of those things are, but I think discussion is definitely like the first step in bringing awareness to them and like us being able to be comfortable talking about these things and having, having discourse as a community and as a culture so that when these things do arise that maybe it's something that we can handle more effectively or more confidently. Right. And I mean, Taking the right steps is definitely something that we don't get to learn in like our education system or yeah. anything like that. And I don't know that it would be something that I, I don't. I honestly don't know what if it's something that should be standardized and taught because every situation is quite different. Yeah. And I, I've spoken with uh, victims of assault, uh, not necessarily in domestic situations, even though it takes place in domestic settings. Yeah. Um, where. When I talk with person and I say, well, somebody told me somebody tried to ab abuse you, and uh, I remember this person was being very, very defensive mm -hmm. of that because she always thought of herself as a strong woman. And the fact that somebody characterized her as a victim made her seem weak, and she didn't want to appear as that. And that kind of feeds into the shame of becoming a victim and also showing weakness as well. So, and that wall in itself makes it difficult for the victims to come out of abusive situations sometimes. And, you know, a lot of people who are, have never been in that situation always say, well, why don't they, why doesn't she just get out? Or he, you know, this happens to both men and women, yeah. but to a lesser extent to men. So yeah, so I, I, I understand the situation you just described as well. I think that's such a good point to bring up too is because, um, yeah, people don't like to view themselves as victims or being weak. And I mean, whether that's like intentionally they just don't want to look at that or it, because there's such a social stigma on weakness and I mean, being the victim of anything that it, it like we were saying, it creates this dynamic where the people who are being victimized and abused, it puts more shame onto them than it does onto the actual perpetrators, which is really a problem. Yeah. And also just the, I mean, yeah, because some people in the moments when this is happening, it's very hard to characterize it as abuse for them, I think, and so they don't allow it into their self-concept to realize what's, what's happening to them is like illegal or immoral in some way or unsafe for them. And so for all those reasons, like they also kind of stand in the way of receiving help, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. But what you said about education, because I, it's there should be some type of awareness about it, but it's unclear what that is because I don't know that it comes from public education. But I feel like it does come from us being closer as a community and being able to distill a set of of values that that are maybe general in a sense that they don't um, that they're not uninclusive of like 
a variety of perspectives, but at the same time protect basic human rights. Yeah, exactly. And you know, if you're, you're basing off the idea that when a, women and men are equal, uh, especially uh, starting from that basic belief, then maybe we can we can go towards the same direction. I, I suppose. I, yeah, it's, it's it's difficult to talk about, right? It's not like well, fortunately, we don't we don't have to think of a solution. Yeah, that's not our particular, uh, especially now. You know, we just want to talk about this problem. But I'm I'm really glad that we brought this subject to the fore because it is it is a problem. Um, the the self shame the the idea that oh we're not supposed to be weak or feel weak as modern women yeah whereas being victimized doesn't really have to do with us being weak more like no matter what your situation is somebody is taking advantage of that situation somebody sought fit to take advantage of your situation Um, and that has nothing to do with what we do or what we did and speaking of relationships that you were talking about, is that a lot a lot of the times in you know domestic partnership situations, that abuse doesn't come out right away. It it's a slippery slope in, to some extent. And love uh, on a chemical level is like a drug, <laughs> and it does make you uh, forgive and put on rose-colored glasses. Um, a lot more than we really should sometimes. So, um, and I, I know I personally have been in situations where I'm excusing somebody that I'm loving, despite the fact that if I, looking at my situation now from you know with the benefit of time, I'm thinking, good lord, why, you know, and, and benefit of time, time and distance. Because yeah, I think that's that's such a good. Um, Thing to comment on is the fact that we we view people who are the victims of some type of emotional or uh, relationship abuse as being kind of stupid in a sense where they should have been aware of what they were getting into or we tend to looking looking in from the outside think that there's always like very obvious markers that something's wrong right away when usually it's that the person is um, using like psychological abuse that builds gradually over time and it's, it's very much designed to like uh, deteriorate somebody's boundaries and to really kind of make them question their self-concept and identity. So I mean, it's, it's not that the people that get involved in these situations are stupid at all, but like once you're in the situation, it becomes very difficult to get out. So I mean, because yeah, it's not really a sign of weakness at all that people could get involved in this and it could honestly happen to anybody. Yeah, yeah, and especially for people who never thought it could happen to them, they find themselves in that situation. Yeah. It's even worse for them to get out because they they have this denial of how can this happen to me. Exactly. Because it becomes an ego thing as well because you don't want to think that you chose the wrong person or to admit that this person that you fell in love with is the wrong person for you. Exactly, and just that loss of control as well that comes from saying that, you know, I think, I think it becomes a matter of control, like the people who are connected in this kind of codependent, abusive way, like the person who's being victimized wants to believe that they can control the situation by being better, or just like doing something more, they, they can somehow get a handle on it, because I think as human beings it's very difficult for us to accept that there's just things that are outside of our control, you know? Yes. 
Yes. It's, <laughs> it's almost, it almost makes life unbearable to think that, you know, when we do everything within our power to do, that things still can go absolutely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, I don't. I want to push that thought all the way to some corner that I never get yeah. to see. Because like you're saying, it's ego. Like it's, it, or just being like a good person, you want to believe you're always going to get good things in return or like you're, you'll have control of your life and like that's only true to such an extent and then there's things that are those unreconcilable forces that are completely outside of our control. So. Yeah, we never recognized really fully or formally how much um, the role of luck plays into our lives. Yeah, really some ways. Yeah. yeah, and and it's it's. Um, I mean, I don't think of it as necessarily something that's you know uh, otherworldly, but more like the culmination of everybody else's actions, including uh, you know our species and other species and the planet. Everything yeah. just that almost that chaos theory, that butterfly effect. Yeah, you know, it's something that we can't possibly control. And to understand that actually is healthy to place ourselves in a better, have a better sense of our place in the world. Yeah, definitely. And so would you mind to just talk about the transition between part one and part two? Yeah, just about like the perspectives in that? Or yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, so for, for the poem, the parts that we transition through, they're um, different, different rooms that are happening. Because okay. I guess within the within the community, because like I said, apartment living, it's all kind of like you're in one big house, and even if they try and like insulate or like do whatever, it's like you're still like very deeply connected to the people around you, and like you hear what's going on, and like right. Right. I don't have a TV too, so I'm just like really sensitive to it, maybe. But it's yeah. like you you know what's going on with people to some extent. Um, so we start out like in the perspective of the the narrator of this book, um, who is the downstairs neighbor. And we kind of move through it through the perspectives of the, the woman upstairs who, who is a mother with, um, she has her three children and her, her marriage that is kind of falling apart. Um, and then through the last perspective, we kind of like glance into the effect that this is having on the children. And like the, I feel like the poem, the way that it ends and it starts, it kind of comes full circle because yeah. the, the narrator is talking about having this dream of like the boys fighting in school and it then we kind of end on the image of the effect that this is having on the children who are being subjected to this in a more intense way and actually having to witness and live through the effect of this and find a, find a way to cope. And I think oftentimes the people who have witnessed um, such extreme violence, they go on to perpetrate this violence in a way as well. So it can have a very kind of like uh, circular effect in people's lives. Right. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Uh, children who witness violence... Um, sometimes just repeat that violence because that's yeah. all they know. Or uh, they go to the other side, they, they become you know, social workers or cops and they try to prevent that violence. Yeah. And, but they still live in that dynamic in some ways. So in a way, the first stanza of the first part is the dream. When you said, uh, knock me from a dream where I had stood in a crowd Certainly a group of school-age boys who land the punches as we all scream. That's almost like a foreshadowing of the end of half, part three, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. I, I, really, I really love how this poem ties into each other in, in three parts that on um, first reading can seem very distinct from each other. So I, I love that. And ironically enough, it's 
those lines that I just read about the school-aged boys that took me to my poem. And before, before I go to that, though, I did want to ask you specifically about this line. I thought it was really interesting that the narrator was in a crowd that surrounded by surrounded the school-aged boys, but it was the school-aged boys who were landing punches. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because usually I tend to think the people who are surround are the ones they are surrounding the victims, whereas the way that you wrote it, it seemed like. There's really no difference between victims and victimized. The school-age boys are punching, but they're punching from within this um, this circle. Yeah. Well, I think because, like we were saying, um, like when people don't intervene uh, with these acts of violence or things happening, like it all becomes kind of like a collusion of silence, and it kind of eggs on the problem and it invites it to to keep happening. Um, so that's why I felt like the narrator was kind of through this this lack of moral conviction or willingness to act that they kind of contribute to these things and inflame the issues or egg them on in a way. Right. And and the boys in their turn, not only they're punching out in what they know, what they grew up with, and then they're punching society in some ways for not so much for not not uh, helping them, but the violence hurts the people who stay silent. Yeah. Even though when they stayed silent, they thought they could stay out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's there's an interconnectedness within all the members of a community. So, I mean, right. if we allow these things to, because of the interconnectedness of people, like if these things happen, like they're going to affect people in our community and they continue to affect the health of the community, whether we want them to or not. Right. So, I mean, if we look at, we can look at ourselves as individuals, but the community is also an organism in a sense that if, if individual people are kind of falling into this chaos and like illness, then it's going to affect the health of the community and drag the community down into illness as well. So right, right. So we're not truly compartmentalized, even though uh, you, this beautiful imagery of the apartment, you know, it seems we are separate, but we're not. Yeah, we're in still. Some ways. We're still relating to each other. We still, the health of one of our neighbors still affect our health. And so, as I said, the the reason why I chose um, my poem Bullfight was because of these um, schoolboys that you mentioned during the first stanza of the first part of your poem. So I, I'm going to read my poem. I forget if I read Hemingway's short stories about those sad old bullfighters or saw a bullfight first. There had always been an enigmatic allure associated with bullfighting. The heroism the facing off between man and beast is like watching a real-life battle between David and Goliath. And I'm a sucker for the underdog. Then I made the mistake of going to see a real bullfight. And the magical illusion, the hero worship, was replaced by the horror of knowing all the trickery that reduced this magnificent animal to a disoriented, raging beast repeatedly assaulted by a horde of cowards from every direction until they have drained it of its energy, of its lifeblood, with one spear after another. After that, I felt only shame for what I had witnessed, shame to have paid to lend demand 
for such a brutal display of cowardice. Shame to have helped to prolong this blood sport. Shame to share the same species as these murderers. Yet I know also about the other side, about the real physical risks to those spear throwers, about their need to eke out a living in the limited way they know. And I can imagine their fear, even as they chase after the glory and the gold. And I have been there, both the bullfighter and the bull. Today, I am laying down, panting after the last spear has taken me down, taking ever shallower breaths. That's so beautiful and powerful. Thank you. I mean, the, really, like the image that you close on too, like made it so vivid and brought it to life for me too. Where you describe these like visceral sensations of like when you become the bull dying in a way. Thank you. I'd love to hear you talk about more of like what what inspired you to write it. Oh, um, well, this is my first prose poem. I was going through a hard time where a group of friends, a group of people. I thought were my friends that decided to turn on me and、um, protect someone they had known in their midst for a long time, who had hurt me, and I really felt as if I was being ganged up on. I mean, in in the larger sense, it's about bullying and how、uh, your body actually feels in in terms of the effects of bullying. Whether or not there is anything physical involved,、yeah. um, but that sense of you know rage, also of not being able to to succeed in fighting back, even though you feel this sense of overwhelming rage. So that's why I ended on such a bleak <laughs> imagery of, of the bull dying. Yeah, the last image is the part that I feel like、um, it makes it so personal, and then we see like where where you as the narrator kind of come into play in this. I felt like it was apropos in in terms of using this imagery to describe what I was feeling. Partly because if you have read those Hemingway short stories, it's still bullfighters that you really feel bad about because you see them falling into. Uh, drunkenness because they can no longer be in the ring. They can no longer do what they did as a career in order to survive as with dignity. But then, having seen the real bullfight, you realize not that not that the danger they face is not real, but the author had been manipulated because the bull, despite what a strong animal it is, before a bullfight, is sequestered. In a dark place,、um, so it's almost in solitary confinement. So it comes out raging. At the same time, you have a group of people surrounding the bull and all throwing sharp objects at the bull, trying to penetrate its hide from all directions. So there, when you see that contrasted to the story, the feelings of the stories you read of the old bullfighters, as an observer. Just、um, outside observer, you can you can feel the empathy for both parties. But then, when you experience that situation yourself in that metaphorical way, then you know I I try to be balanced in this book, but I don't feel like I did a very good job in terms of balancing. I I mean,、um, I feel like at the end 
there is nothing to be done. And also as a bull, it's almost like, you know, it's a different species. Don't have the same language skills. There's there's this very clear divide yeah. that cannot even you cannot even physically cross. That's what that um, the line specifically where you say um, it's, it's like watching a real life battle between David and Goliath, and I'm a sucker for the underdog. That's when I read that. Like I did feel like it can almost be both ways because as as you know humans, when we watch that, we kind of tend to identify. I think with the the matador or like the bullfighter in the situation, but really the underdog is kind of the bull because they don't have a choice in the matter and they've just been kind of like drawn into this situation where they have, um, they don't have a choice and they're, they're being victimized in the ultimate way and despite having like superior strength in the situation, they've been kind of cast down into a lesser role. Yeah, and often uh, we don't get to hear the bull's story. Yeah. Um, not. Not only because the bull is a different species, doesn't speak human language or anything like that, but also because we don't, um, we, similar to those neighbors in your poem, the people who go to see bullfights might not bother to find out the backstory of what the bull goes through in preparation for a bullfight. Definitely, and like you were describing this being about bullying, I think in, in instances of bullying, there's definitely like that prevailing narrative, which whoever is the person who gets to put that out first, like they kind of grab the upper hand in the situation and detract from what's really happening. And like with bullfights, it's like you were saying, the heroism, and there's a certain archetypal energy that I feel like it's activated in that, but at the same time, it's not all it's not all positive. And like, because I was the same way, I told you I read The Sun Also Rises, and then mm-hmm. I was like, oh, bullfighting, it's so there's an allure to it, but then when I watched actual bullfights on, on the internet, I was like, wow, it's, it's grisly, and it's actually, it's, it's quite inhumane, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of torture involved. It's very uh, drawn out, yeah. Yeah, it's drawn out, and it's, it's a show. It's kind of like reality TV in many senses, because people think of reality TV as real, but it's not, it's scripted. Yeah. In the same way that bullfights are scripted, you know, there's a formula, you know, what we, what you do to the ball, you know, what the isolation prior to the bullfight. So there's a, there's a formula to, to that. And, but it seems like, oh, these are just normal happenings of real life, but it really isn't. There is, um, there are layers to the story. Yeah, this is really beautiful. Thank you. When you, when you take into consideration like your reasons for writing this, is there multiple layers to it? Because you also talk about like the, the shame for you know, paying for, for, what you, for what you witnessed and the things like that. I mean, does it come away from bullying as well? And does it kind of speak to also like the, that side of it or like animals and the things that we subject them to? Or? There's definitely a reflection on animal cruelty um, and there is a reflection on, you know, just as human beings, we come in this world without real knowledge of what life is going to be like. We can't tell the future. And sometimes we might do things to others. Um, for instance, bullying. I have done that when I was a kid. And throughout my life, there are situations where, you know, if I look back, I could consider that as bullying. Yeah. Um, yet I was, I didn't have the wisdom to know that when I was doing that and then suddenly finding myself in the role of being bullied, I kind of realized that. I kind of realized that aspect and 
again, it's this dynamic that we fall into. Either we're the bully or the bullied. Yeah. But we never get out of that, and that's the very unhealthy aspect. And that's the dynamic that I feel like both of our poems kind of talk about. It's it's this dichotomy world that we are caught in and can't get out of. That sometimes we don't fully understand until we become, we take on the role of whichever side that it is on. Yeah, definitely. I think like issues of empathy and morality, like they're not always black and white. And so sometimes through taking on different roles, like we can, we can come to have compassion for people. Um, and sometimes it is only through being wounded or ourselves and once you experience something like that you do become uh like more compassionate because you you understand the effect that you're having on other people and it's like like we're saying that prevailing narrative you kind of have to overwrite it and then look at the actual truth of the situation and not look at it in like a black and white dichotomous language and just see it for the truth of the experience that it is but but that's why i love at the end where you become the bull and there's like both sides of it yeah Yeah. from talking about the matadors and you know and having read the stories, as I said, you do feel they have no other way of choosing another life for themselves. This is the life that they have, and they have to make it as good as they can make it. So I do feel, I do still feel sorry for them, for the fact that an outside factor like time and age has weakened them to a point that they can never Almost like time is the ultimate bully. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's like, well, time makes them the bull themselves because it's just, you know, it's really, there's something, death is lurking behind for all of us. And it's just, it's when that comes around or by what means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, so back to your poem, I wanted to ask you, I guess, about what your experiences in Spain were and how you feel... um, like the bullfight or your poem about the bullfight connects to um, some of their cultural associations or religious associations that surround it. It's actually been a very long time since I I was in Spain and saw the bullfight itself, but um, there's definitely a a huge identification with the matador. Um, It's almost the ultimate male symbol in some ways. Within Spain itself, I've, I haven't seen the latest uh, information about bullfighting. There's been a move away from that. I mean, within Spain itself, there's uh, definitely people who are holding on to that tradition, and then there are people who want to move away and recognize it as a, a really the animal cruelty aspect of it all. Um, and I'm glad for that because it's not it's not really a fair fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it does make me think about kind of some of the stuff that we see in the food industry too and how we've kind of disconnected from the idea that animals are sentient beings that are also um, entitled to a certain a certain amount of respect. Yeah, I, I, I feel that as well is that I, I'm an omnivore. I feel like we evolved to become omnivores for a reason and in some ways food trends that we see can actually be detrimental to the environment because we might take out salmon, for instance, it's incredibly popular. But because salmon is so overfished because of its popularity, it collapsed the system. Even though I'm an omnivore, I still try to be very aware of what I purchase, where where the food is sourced from. I don't always succeed 
but you know, at least I try. I try to be aware of it. The thing that's interesting to me is that a lot of people tend to forget now. They're because of this trend, being aware of animals as sentient beings. People who don't eat animal flesh seem to forget that also plants are alive as well, yeah. and that you know, even if we become herbivores, we are still killing. No matter what, when we're eating, we're killing something. And so, to me, it's about more respect for the food that we have, trying not to waste, and trying not to be cruel to the food that we raise or we domesticate and, and ultimately butcher as uh, food. Um, that you know, we respect that life. That we re- respect the fact that a life is being killed in order for our life to move on and continue. That's really well put because it's like we were talking about earlier with um, being on both sides of an experience and learning to have empathy through that. And I think uh, witnessing these types of acts, you know, they might be uh, horrific when we see something like this, but they have the positive, the positive aspect that they do lead us to consider these things and the fact that in order for us to be alive, like something has to die, we have to eat something and and to bring us into, I think, connection with that kind of primal chaotic energy that says, like, okay, I must kill to survive, but you can still temper that with a sense of um, compassion and restraint and knowing uh, how much you need to take, I guess, from, from the world that you live in. Right, and, and just live more in harmony with the world that we're in. We're a part of it. Yeah, and, and realize that the amount of food that we're just wasting while people in even within this country are starving being malnourished we have to think of a way where that food is not going to waste that it is feeding everyone or as many people as possible and respect what we take and try not to take more than what we need yeah that's i think the perfect word is just respect yeah yeah that's really beautiful i'm I'm glad to get to hear you read this in person too and tell me more about like your story behind it because it's it's powerful and I really connect to it thank you thank you the same with your poem and I, I really appreciate how we can relate our poems to to each yeah. other's stories not only the backstories but also the poems yeah. to themselves I, I wanted to know where you'll be appearing next um, so I, I do have the the My Beauty Within movement that I'm reading at on January 11th I'll be participating uh, me and a couple of my friends here, uh, Lauren Drexler, Tina Vale, are going to be other poets performing in the event, and then Gina Roboto is going to be doing live painting there as well. Um, the Art Space Grand Opening on January 23rd, I will be reading some of my poetry and having visual art displayed in the gallery. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Besides that, like, I don't really use social media, so just like, um, like poetry events in downtown Mesa, I'll be around. At the community, kind of local, personal level is the best way to, okay. to find out about what I'm doing if, you, if you're interested. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll do that. Thank you very much, and uh, please let us know when your book comes out. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me. Yeah, same here. I will be posting the links to the shows that both Israe and myself will be appearing in on January 11th, 12th, and the 23rd in our episode notes, so make sure to check those out. And that concludes our Sunday, January 6th episode. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. I look forward to bringing you the show again next Sunday on January 13th.